Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 204th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Blair Ducanet. Blair is a financial advisor with Ritholtz Wealth Management, an independent RIA based in the New York City area that oversees nearly $1.3 billion of assets in our management for more than 1,000 affluent clients. What's unique about Blair, though, is the way that she's been able to build her client base at the firm, up to $90 million of client assets in barely two and a half years, in a role that by design and her choice doesn't require her to actively prospect for business and instead lets her focus on the client relationships and the investment committee work she enjoys most and why she gave up being a partner at her prior firm for this current employee role. In this episode, we talk in depth about the journey that Blair has taken through different types of firms in the industry, from starting out in a major wirehouse in various operational and investment support roles, to the transition she first made to the independent channel, not as a proactive decision to break away from the wirehouse world, but simply out of need for a job after the financial crisis. Why her decision to launch her own independent RA was driven more by a family change in limited alternatives than a desire to hang her own shingle, the opportunity that led her to merge her firm into a larger local one, and why finding an advisory firm that had a strong organic growth rate of its own was ultimately such a driving factor in her decision to join Ritholtz Wealth Management. We also talk about the steps that Blair took to reinvest in herself to advance her career, the reasons she decided to pursue the CFA charter holder as her first professional designation, the path she took to act her CFP marks thereafter, why Blair has no regrets for having spent several years working as a sales assistant before coming a financial advisor, and the moment when Blair was attending a financial advisor conference that she realized she was going to have to make a change. And be certain to listen to the end, where Blair shares the real-world challenges and frustrations that came with starting her career in financial services as a young person straight out of college and as a female in a male-dominated industry. The steps she took to make sure she stayed in the industry, whatever it took, until she found the right role, and why, in retrospect, she believes it's so important to be patient in taking early entry-level roles that form the foundation of a long-term career as a financial advisor. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Blair Ducanet. Welcome, Blair Ducanet, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me to be here. It's an honor. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion on the on the podcast and and just talking about the the journey you've had through the financial advisor world you know I, I know a lot of the folks that we have on the podcast over the years have have kind of done these I guess I'll call them like journeys to independence or, or sometimes or often journeys to launching a firm and hanging their own shingle and you know, I'll admit like I I guess I have a slight bias that way just because I'm sort of entrepreneurially minded. Like I, I I like to hang my shingle and and do my own thing. But I know like a lot of people don't or that's not necessarily their ideal journey or their ideal outcome. If you just literally look at the math of the industry, a huge and growing number of advisors are are in a wide range of employee models, independent models, large firms, small firms, roll-ups, so many different ways that the industry can be configured. And I know you've had an, an interesting journey because you have lived a lot of that, like 
large firm environment, small firm environment, hung your own shingle for a period of time, have been an employee in a firm, have kind of been through merging, lots of different ways that this can get configured. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited to talk about your journey going through that and deciding, and I guess what I'm sure were a lot of twists and turns for your own path of like, why be an why be an employee model when you've been an employee and why be independent when you want to be independent and why merge when you wanted to merge and just how has all of this evolved and played out for you to find the path and decide like how you want to build your career now that it seems like you've landed someplace that you are are pretty happy with and staying with yeah i mean there and we can get into the details of how all of those moves happened. I mean, I guess if we were still living in the traditional resume world and somebody was looking to hire and my resume came across their desk, they'd probably immediately toss it and say, well, this person never stays anywhere very, very long. She's a failure. But it took me a while to find my home. And there's a couple of twists and turns along the way that were personal life changes as well, right? I moved from New York to New Orleans when after I met my husband. So, So yeah, I mean, I think just like a lot of people who enter our industry, I started in a brokerage firm. That's who was hiring. That's who hires 21-year-olds with no experience. And so that's where I began my journey because just a little backstory, I I went to the University of Georgia. So I was interviewing in Atlanta. I went to interview on an institutional fixed income desk and rode down the elevator with a, a broker who chatted me up and said, what are, you, what are you doing here? Who are you? And I said, I just left an interview with the institutional fixed income team. And he said, oh, you went to University of Georgia. We love to hire UGA alums. Why don't you come in and talk to us tomorrow? And clearly I had bombed the other interview, but I went in the next day and spoke to him and, and he hired me and that was my first job in a brokerage firm. And so that's really how it all started. And it, it just took a meandering path from there. But yes, I've worked in probably every business model as an advisor. I think what a lot of people may not know about me is I did not start as a broker, as an advisor. I didn't enter a broker training program. I wasn't thrown to the wolves and told to read the phone book and start cold calling. I started as a sales assistant. That was my first job. So I had a salary. It was a small salary, but I was not, you know, immediately being told to generate business. And so that was the first five or so years of my career was working under advisors, learning the business from the ground up, even on the operational side. That's where I began. So I'll I'll ask you, you know, what is it that you want to know about that journey and happy to share as much as I can. So I I think I'd love to just start, like start right there. Well, I I guess even like a brief step back. I mean, what were you studying at University of Georgia that you were then interviewing firms in New York City for like institutional bond trading desk jobs? And and obviously you landed here in the financial advisor world. Like, were you at the, were you in the CFP program at, at UGA? Were you somewhere else in University of Georgia? Like what? What was the actual studying career path that led you to the industry in the first place? Yeah, so maybe I should back up two more steps to start there. I entered college as a dance major. I was a classically trained ballerina, and I wanted to be a ballet dancer. And that was my major going into college. And somewhere around the end of my freshman year, I said, 
you know, it might make sense to get a second degree while I'm here, you know, <laughs> something to fall back on, so to speak. I was going to say, this is like the classic parents, like, Blair, we are so happy that you're pursuing your dream, but like, could you get a second major with the fallback? <laughs> yeah, maybe this isn't going to pay the bills because even if I am a successful ballet dancer, that career is not very long and I'm going to have to do something afterwards anyway. And since my parents are so kind to be paying for me to go to college, not that they told me what to do because my parents kind of knew me at that point. If they told me not to do something or told me to do something, I was going to do the opposite. But luckily, I had some sense and decided to pursue a business major. Did not know what specialty it would be at first. Started taking the basics, you know, economics, accounting. And it was in essentially accounting 101 where the concept of time value of money was taught and I was hooked. I was I thought it was magical that the money that you invest today will earn money that will then earn money that will then earn money and it will turn into something very large up into the future and I knew that finance was going to be my specialty. I like, <laughs> compounding is the eighth wonder of the world is what hooked you on in the finance business. Yes, that is the nerdiest thing ever. But that is, and that's a wonderful thing, right? Um, that is what hooked me. And I just started studying markets. And as I took capital markets and learned about how to value stocks and bonds and interest rates and options and ended up even taking a futures class over in the ag school because the University of Georgia is a very large state university and there is an agriculture school there. So that's what I studied. I predate the CFP program at the University of Georgia. I'm very proud that it exists today, but it was not an option for me. So I just have your straight, you know, BBA in business finance degree. And that first interview, by the way, was actually in Atlanta. So I started at UBS in their Atlanta office, worked there for the first year of my career. But that's how I ended up with a finance degree. The long story was I thought I wanted to be an investment banker. It sounded really cool. They worked really hard and made a lot of money and worked on important transactions in the business world. The recruiting at University of Georgia was about two investment banks, both of which are probably rolled into larger organizations. I think it was Robinson Humphrey and some predecessor of Wachovia. They did come and interview and being top 10% of my class, of course, I was on the list of people they wanted to talk to, but I didn't pass muster, whatever I said or did. <laughs> I did not make it to you know the second round of interviews and was not picked up by an investment bank. So that's why I found myself moving to Atlanta without a, a first job and going on that interview that I probably found on monster.com because there were online job listings back then, but that was essentially where they were and took that faded elevator ride where I ended up working in wealth management. And here I am today. So just to clear on the other, like, you were there interviewing for another job, struck up the conversation with a broker in the elevator coming out of the other interview. And then it was the it was the broker you chatted up in the elevator who chatted you up in the elevator that actually became the job path, not the thing you went to interview for from the job you found on Monster. Exactly. I was desperately trying to do something on the quote unquote institutional side of the business. That's what was cool back then, right? You, you didn't want to be in retail. That was the lesser job. And the hilarious thing about all of that is that post financial crisis now, you know, the institutional side of the business, the, half of those jobs never even came back. And now it's all glamorous to be on the quote unquote retail side because you actually have the opportunity to build work life balance and it's a very stable career. But back then, it was not cool to end up, you know, going retail, but that's what happened. 
so the broker that that brought you in, like, was that a broker that was on the the retail side doing financial advising for clients as we would think of it today, or was that just was that still a broker somewhere else on some other institutional desk in in UBS? The really cool part about it is that this was a wealth management team in the Atlanta office at UBS. They had just dropped the Payne Weber part. It was UBS Payne Weber. I still saw some of the old, you know, stationery around the office. And they had a split business. Half of it was financial planning, believe it or not, and you know, building long-term asset allocation portfolios for high net worth individuals. And the other half was 401k pension consulting type business. So right from the get-go, even though my job was sales assistant, you know, answer the phone, schedule the meetings, send out the wires and the checks, bind to the presentations, I actually had was given experience, you know, in entering financial planning data into the software and into doing manager searches for the 401k clients. So I really got a nice education on the side of my basically secretarial job. So I am curious that you've come through with your business degree, you know, scoring incredibly well in the top 10% of your class, looking at finance jobs and ended out in a sales assistant role that I think as you characterize it, like had a lot of secretarial duties. I, I feel like for some for some advisor, for some people, even even or perhaps especially coming out of school, like wouldn't take that job. Like, no, I got, I got my degree. I I was a good student in college. Like, I I have to enter somewhere different for the business. I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, did, how did you look at that first job? Were you happy to land there? Thankful to forget a job? Looking at it as a stepping stone? How did you think about that first role coming out of school and saying? I want to be in this business and this is the job I've landed with. Yeah, I had a huge chip on my shoulder. I was not happy about it. And I often wonder, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was interviewing for different jobs, you know, why all of those didn't work out. I even went on what you call an informational interview. I don't have any family members in this business, right? You know, my dad has a family run ready mix concrete business and my mom is a kindergarten teacher. But my dad did set me up with an interview in my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama with a bank president that was a friend of his. And I remember walking into that office. Here I am, top of my class at University of Georgia, magna cum laude with honors. And I sit down to talk to this bank president for an informational interview. And after the interview, he says, you should put in for a, for a teller position. And I remember being so angry about that at the time. And now that I think back about it, I'm even angrier because I have a feeling that if I had been a man, he would have never said that to me. Obviously, I can't prove that. But if you look at my credentials on paper, it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I was not happy about it. I didn't understand why this had happened to me. I didn't understand why I was passed over by the investment banks. The truth of the matter is the strength of the University of Georgia Terry School of Business was their risk management program, putting people into the insurance industry as underwriters, and their accounting program. Finance um, has some distinguished professors, but not great recruiting. And so that's probably part of the, of the story. Another thing is, I think a big mistake that I made is I graduated a semester early. So I finished college in three and a half years. And that December interview cycle is not the cycle where all the jobs are. 
So, you know, it wasn't the school at the time to go to where the, you know, the Wall Street firms were coming down and, and looking for hires. And I didn't have, you know, an inroad from family connections. So, yeah, I kind of started, you know, behind where I wanted to be. And I was pretty much looking at my friends who went to be underwriters and, you know, made significantly more money than me. But that was that was the only job I could find. And so I took it and I learned I learned a lot, but I was pretty much a pessimist that that whole time. I was not happy that I had gone and earned this degree to basically be a secretary. So so then like how did that role progress and evolve? Like what what happened? Because I think you were you were there for a number of years. So what did the role look like or how did it shape up over time as you went from newbie and no experience to not not so newbie and having a few years of experience? Yeah. Well, the first change happened after a year. I was in Atlanta and I wanted to move to New York. Luckily, the branch manager at for in the Atlanta office was from New York. And I went to him and told him that I was interested in moving and he helped me. He helped me find a position with UBS in their Manhattan office. And so I I transferred up there um, after my first year and I joined um I briefly spent a little bit of time. It was it was part of the wealth management group there, but there was this middle markets institutional team that spoke to small hedge funds. And so I spent a few months there. That ended up actually being not a good fit for me. And so I came back down to the branch on a different floor. And at that time, there was a husband and wife team that had just been recruited over from Wachovia. And they did not have a sales assistant and I helped them with their transition and I ended up becoming their sales assistant. So my second year in the business, I was a sales assistant for another team in Manhattan. Coincidentally, this is the team where a friend of theirs who had an account with them who would call in to place trades was a man by the name of Barry Ritholtz. Small world. Yeah. Small world. (laughs) And I remember being told by the broker, look, this guy, he's on television. He's a big deal. Make sure you treat him, you know, really well when he calls in. He's famous and everything. And and I, I treated him exactly as I would treat all of all clients, which was very well. But I do remember talking to Barry back in those days and, and knowing who he was. It's funny how life is is circular in that way. So, what led to the move up to New York City? Was this uh, just? I want to live the life of of New York City. Was this a, like a career oriented move? Hey, I think I'll have more Wall Street job opportunities if I can literally get up to Manhattan and be closer to Wall Street. What led to the decision to make the move? Yeah, a couple of things. So, you know, New York is a, a, a it's the center of ballet. So I'd always been interested in New York as a ballet dancer, and although I had been accepted into some summer programs to study ballet in New York. At the time, my parents would not allow me. I was allowed to go outside of Boston for one summer, Houston for another summer, Charleston another, but I was never allowed to go to those summer programs in New York. So I'd always loved the city and never even visited it until my junior year of college. And then it was also the center of finance. So it it had always called to me. I knew I wanted to live in New York. And lo and behold, I started dating a guy who lived in New York. And so all the pieces came together and I was able to make basically a lateral transfer with UBS up to the office there. Interestingly enough, at first UBS wanted to tell me that they could not give me a raise because it was a lateral transfer. 
and they wanted me to move up there on my tiny you lived like, in Manhattan on an Atlanta sales assistant income. Yeah, so luckily I was able to get bumped up to whatever the starting pay would be for you know a sales assistant in Manhattan, but there was a little hiccup there. So it was basically a lateral transfer for personal reasons, and here I am, twenty three years old, moving you know getting on a plane with bags that weighed a little too much. And I remember my mom dropping me off at the airport and having to take some shoes out and tell her to mail them to me. And I moved to New York with a a really heavy suitcase. And that was the start of a wonderful six years that I spent in New York. So so what happened? uh, Like what happened next on the on the journey? You're 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 now living a sales assistant job with this new team with this husband wife team that's that's come over. So like, what was your role? there in practice? Like, what were you doing at this point? Yeah, what was really cool about working for them is they had very traditional, you know, buy and sell individual stocks and municipal bond type business. And the focus at the time at UBS was to take smaller accounts and put them into mutual fund wrap fee programs. And they really allowed me to to do that for them, to research what should be in the models? You know, what 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 should our asset allocation be for these smaller accounts? And pick the funds and build them. So, in addition to holding down the fort, right? If they were out meeting with clients or had not come into the office yet that day, I was, you know, I was answering the phones and handling the client relationships. But I also got to flex my muscles a little bit on the investment side, and for the first time, actually make you know investment decisions. And at the time, I was studying for, had passed maybe CFA level one and was studying for level two. So I was really getting into it on on the investment side. And that and those were some really fun days, but I started to realize that I needed to move up to something else, that I wasn't going to just stay with their team and, and grow with it and, you know, kind of do what a lot of people try to do, which is maybe one day these people r- will retire and I can take their business. That was never really something I was looking to do. So I interviewed for a role internally, it was called a branch analyst. And it's essentially a resource that sits in the office and puts together investment presentations for all the brokers in an office. And I got it. And it was two blocks down on 6th Avenue and another UBS branch. And I, and I moved to that. And I remember it was almost like, you know, this, I call it my Tess McGill moment, you know, the movie Working Girl, where she gets her own office you know, and she kind of like sits back and there was no window, but you know, like I remember just sitting down but and I had like- there was a door. There was a door. It's not about the window. It's about the door. Yeah. I have a door. I can close the door and then it's my own private space. Yeah. I had that. And so I worked for a few years. It was another huge UBS office in Manhattan. Something like it took up a whole floor, a whole city block. You know, we backed up to the Lehman Brothers building and that is where I witnessed the financial crisis was from that role in that in that job. You know, I remember the auction rate certificate market f- seizing up and clients that thought they had cash, high yielding cash not being able to get their money out. I remember the structured notes that were backed by Lehman becoming worthless. I was there for the whole shebang in that office, you know. And that's where I witnessed the carnage of the great financial crisis. And that was a fun time because essentially as a branch analyst not only are you a resource for all the advisors in the office, all of the mutual fund wholesalers come to you. 
And so part of my job was putting together lunches and dinners and events where the mutual funds, where the manager wholesalers could get access to advisors to pitch their products. So I always like to laugh that I was probably paid more in steak dinners than I was in salary for that job, but it was a whole lot of fun. And it was something that, you know, not there's not a whole lot of better ways to spend your mid-20s than doing that. So you mentioned there that you had also started working on on the CFA, I guess, like on, on the side or in parallel while you were doing this. So can you can you talk a little bit more about about the CFA? Like what 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 led you there? What were you what were you trying to do or pursue? Like how did how did you end out adding in the CFA? Right. Because if I just think sort of generically of person in their twenties enters sales assistant job, usually don't hear a lot of like yeah, I'm a sales assistant. I'm already halfway through my CFA. Doesn't come up a lot. So, 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 talk to us about like where did the where did the CFA come from in the midst of this stage of the career journey? I was trying to punch through my glass ceiling. I was dating a guy who worked at Goldman Sachs. He had taken level one of the CFA. He had some fancy job making twice what I did, but he wasn't twice as smart. And I was like, well, maybe this is a way out. And there were a lot of young 20-somethings in Manhattan who are taking their CFA who work in finance. So I said, well, I can take tests. So I started studying for level one with his books from the prior year, didn't even buy new books, and took level one, I guess, maybe at the end of my first year living in New York and passed. I remember I took it at the Javits Center and it's just rows and rows and rows of people just for hours. But the problem with the Javits Center is they let you out for a two-hour lunch break, but it's like a food desert. This is before you had Google Maps, right, on your phone. And I remember like stumbling out of there because when I found out I had 30 minutes left, I had way more questions left than I needed to. And my heart basically almost jumped out of my chest. And I walk around and I can't find anything to eat and I know nowhere to get something to eat. And I went into a 7-Eleven. I basically got a Snickers bar and a Diet Coke. And that was like what I lived on for the rest of the day. So at the end, when I walked out of that test and they were handing out t-shirts that said, I survived the CFA exam, I was like, yes, I need that because I did just survive the gauntlet. But yeah, I was just trying to, to get, a, I was trying to find a way, like how can I break out of basically entering the business in a role that you don't really move from sales assistant to advisor, right? That's not a career path. So I was just searching for ways to prove my capabilities and I took it and I passed it. And so, so I guess what, like what age or what age or stage are you at at this point in the, in the journey? It was August of 2007 that I started as the branch analyst. I was probably 26 years old. And I was in that role all the way through April of 2009, where on the 10th round of layoffs, I was finally the one to go. Because if you so think close. about it, like Survived the first nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like they were cutting, cutting, cutting. And like, at what point do you say, okay, here's like this added resource that we can do without in the branch, right? It has nothing to do with the person. But they knew I was, I was still at this point, I still had a chip on my shoulder. I still didn't understand like why I couldn't get ahead in this business. So they knew I was unhappy, but they also probably knew I would land on my feet. I remember most of the layoffs, you know, you'd get called in and like the HR director of the office would read you, you know, the script and 
and you'd be out of there. But when I walked in for mine, the actual branch manager showed up for it. And I never saw him show up for a layoff before. So I really like, Aww, I felt so like, like that was like a little bit of respect in a way. I would say like, you got fired with respect. You got to appreciate that a little. <laughs> yeah, I, I do to this day. And I remember he told me to go to Europe with the check, you know, like the severance check. And I was like, no, 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 I'm taking CFA level three in six weeks. I'm going to be studying. <laughs> so. Sweet. So you get the, so you get the, the bad news in, in early 2009, I, I guess. So like by this point, you're, you're essentially getting fired like at the market bottom. Now. Yeah. Afterwards, I guess, I guess March was officially the bottom. Yeah. So, so then what comes next? Like you are now laid off from a wall street firm in the middle of what essentially is a depression for the financial services industry. I mean, it was a recession for the country. It was really a, a depression for the financial services industry and particularly for you know, ground zero of it literally being in, in Manhattan finance world. So what comes next? You're like not even not even done with the CFA, so you get to use those letters, which may have helped for getting the next job, but like you gotta find something. So so what comes next? Yeah, so I was given a few months pay and went home to study for the CFA level three. I was a little nervous, but honestly, everybody in their 20s who worked in finance was out of a job that summer. It was kind of fun. You know, we went to the beach, we partied. I remember watching like the entire French Open um, tennis tournament because I just wake up every day at seven and watch tennis, you know. And then a mutual fund wholesaler with Thornburg. Thank goodness Thornburg did not split their wholesalers between broker dealers and RIAs because he worked with both channels and he knew of an RIA firm that was looking to hire somebody and he thought I was a good fit. And so he he told me about it and I literally was like, I'm studying for the CFA, but I need to keep my interview skills up. So I'm just going to go on this interview. I'm not really interested in getting a job yet, but I'm going to go make sure that I maintain those skills. And so I went for an interview at a firm called Wealthstream Advisors, registered investment advisory firm in Manhattan. Michael Goodman is is the founder. And it turns out it was an excellent fit for me. And I joined them as a wealth management analyst, I think in July of 2009. So after the exam was over, I came on board there and that's how I ended up on the RIA side of the business. The connection that I knew as a mutual fund wholesaler made the introduction. Thank you, Rob McInerney with Thornburg. Really changed the whole trajectory of my career. I've never looked back. I remember when I was meeting with with members of the team at Wellstream, somebody told me, well, you do know you're going to have to give up your Series 7. And I, I had never heard of that. I thought that was the only way that you could work with clients was if you had your Series 7. So I really knew nothing about RIAs at that point, but luckily was introduced to one of the best firms, I think, out there to this day and was hired very quickly before my severance ever ran out. I, so I was going to ask, like the making this sort of shift or even call it leap from you know, mega UBS Wall Street firm to small independent RIA, like, did you like, did you know what RIAs were? Did you know what you were getting into? Like, how, how did you come at this at the time? I really had no idea. You know, I remember as a branch analyst at UBS, when there was, I forget the law that was passed where broker dealers could no longer offer fee-based accounts with no advice. Groundbreaking decision. 
Yes, that was uh, that was 2007. That was that was FPA versus SEC 2007. The FPA had that kind of got that rule struck down that was allowing broker dealers to do fee based accounts without advice, without fiduciary. And then after that happened, the you know within a year, I guess heading into 2008, the whole BD world had to start shifting to roll their fee based accounts under the fiduciaries under the RIA side and everybody air quotes like and everybody suddenly was becoming a hybrid. Yes. So around that time as a as the branch analyst, my role was to increase assets in what we called managed money, right? Not commission based business. And so because all of those accounts were now in jeopardy of being kicked out of the program, I remember my job was to go around and make all the advisors go through this process that showed they had done an annual review for those accounts and that for the next year they would be able to keep, you know, their non-commission based trading accounts as long as the advisor was saying, "Well, I'm doing an annual review with them." They were basically just putting lipstick on it. So I was aware very vaguely that this existed, but I did not know what an RIA was. I'd say but like this wasn't exactly the let's do proactive fiduciary financial advice. That was this was the Hey Blair, do you think you can give me a piece of paper in the file that shows we did due diligence of an air quote annual review so I don't get sued for this? That's exactly what it was. That is 100% fill out these seven questions that you had with your client this year to show that you did your annual review. So did did you even I, I guess I mean just even more, like did you know you were interviewing with an RIA? Like did you make that distinction or was it just you know, you were in wealth management, you were interviewing with the firm that was wealth management. And after you got there, someone said like, well, you realize your series of seven is going to go away. And, and you did a like, wait, what? Yeah, I didn't know what it, I knew they were obviously employee owned, right? Not affiliated with a broker dealer, but I didn't know how it all worked. And it was in the interview process that they told me, you know, we don't house your series seven here. We have no way of doing it. It actually won't expire for two years. So if you do need it again and change your mind, you It's not like you're making the decision today to give it up, but just know that that's what's going to happen. And that really made me nervous. But then as soon as I get in there and, you know, basically I'm taught the practice of real financial planning and I see how you can work with clients on what I call, you know, the same side of the table as them without the pressure of, you know, compensation structure changing every year and figuring out how you're going to make the same dollars by offering your clients different services. And without the branch manager walking around the the office saying, hey, have you done any of that structured note? We need to hit our numbers. I very quickly learned, oh, this is amazing. I'm so happy that this happened to me. Getting laid off in hindsight was actually the best thing that could have ever happened in my career because I'm not the kind of person who would quit. So... So yeah, I didn't know what an RIA was, but I very quickly learned and I'm very glad, like I said, that Thornburg did not split their coverage of the two channels because I never would have been given this introduction. So what, I guess like, what was the appeal of going to the firm at the time? Like what, what sold you on, on going to like this little non, non Wall Street employee owned <laughs> wealth management firm thing? Like I just... I know for a lot for a lot of advisors who've only lived their careers in large firm environment, like this is a sort of a strange alien world of like. So basically, it it has very little size or resources, and no one really knows what the career path is. And like, wait, why are you going there? 
Yeah. I mean, I just, they told me what they did with their clients. You know, they said, here's how we do financial planning. Here's how we handle investment recommendations. And I said, this sounds good. You know, I like, I like what I'm hearing here. I'd like to work with clients in this, in this manner. My role was going to be handling, doing all the trades because I had experience placing trades as a sales assistant. It was going to be sitting in on client meetings for about half the clients of the firm. I'd be the secondary quote unquote advisor, you know, at the time fixing and preparing the quarterly performance reports and then, you know, building the financial plans. And it, it, the, the work sounded interesting to me and I like the people. And like I said, I didn't expect when I went on the interview that this was a job that I was going to take, but what I heard when I went in sold me. And, and so I started with them and I had already passed the CFA exam, but I didn't know until a couple of months later. And then they encouraged me to pursue the CFP. And so the following March, I sat for the CFP exam and they, they really taught me how to become a financial planner. And that's really where, and, and the, the longer story is I'd probably still be there, except I met my husband who lives in New Orleans. And so love kind of took me on a different path. I'm still in touch with, with the guys at Wellstream and, um, you know, have followed them all along the way. And we're very good friends to this day. In fact, when I told Michael that I was leaving to move to New Orleans, I actually started crying at the table because I didn't want to really leave them because it was a wonderful, very formative time in my career where I really learned how to do what I do with clients today. I think it, it's fascinating just the the way sometimes these journeys flow and and particularly stumbling over to the RA channel. I mean, I, I remember a similar dynamic you know, when I first made the the shift in my career from the broker dealer side to the RA side. And I, I think very similar. You're like, I didn't know what the difference was. I didn't even really know there was a difference. I don't think I had any discussion about like that. I was going to an RA and it was going to be different. At some point, the discussion came up of like, you realize your series seven is going to go away. And like, we don't have a way to house your license here. And similar, like all I, all I remember was like, okay, well, it sticks around for two years after you let it go. So uh, I have 730 days to figure out whether these people are any good. <laughs> I like that. That's what was around my head. Like, okay, at least uh, there's a two-year window before I can like fall back out of this crazy, whatever strange land that I found myself in and 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 keep that Series 7 license. And, uh, and obviously, I never went back to it. I ended up staying at that firm for 17 years. But... You know, had no idea what the difference was at the time. I think to me, it was just, it was very similar. Like I had lived in firms where it was still very much about sales and production and volume. And, and there was this firm where it's like, no, we really just want to make sure we're, our clients are getting good financial plans. And your job is just to help create the plans and deliver the plans and sit in front of the clients to make sure that they're getting all the good planning advice. And, and we're going to go find more clients. How's that sound? It's like, all right. That sounds really good. <laughs> I, I kind of like that. And like, these are good people and we seem to be doing good things for clients. Let's go. Had no idea what the difference was between the channels at the time though. Yeah. Very similar for me. I remember thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, I have two years and I can still have my series seven, but it did not take me long to realize that I was never going to go back. And so you just sort of mentioned in there as well, like it's like late summer into the fall of 2009 you're you're just getting going in this new role with Wealthstream you're just finding out you're passing your CFA exam the firm says hey you should check out the CFP marks as well and and then boom like you're sitting for the exam 6 months later or so like you plowed through CFP coursework fast 
Yeah, so I was able to challenge the coursework. I didn't have to take it oh, because of my CFA. Because you had just gotten your CFA marks. Yeah. So I just studied and took the exam. Now that's no small task in six months, but particularly yeah. when you haven't been through the structure of the other classes. Like obviously the investment part was was going to be pretty straightforward because you go way deeper in the CFA exam, but estate and insurance and taxes, I would imagine, are things you had not dealt with much at all at that point. Tangentially, right? My very first role, I was entering data into the financial planning software, right? So I knew some of these concepts. But yeah, I mean, it was a beast to study for. And the hilarious thing is another example of I didn't even buy the books. I borrowed the books from a colleague who had taken it two years earlier and just went to town on self-study. And and somehow in March of 2010, took the exam. It was still a one and a half day process of sitting for that exam somewhere in downtown Manhattan. And luckily I passed it. And along the way, I'm actually learning how to become a financial planner from the folks at Wellstream. So that was the really cool part of the process. And so did you do ex- like exam, an exam prep class or any of those, or just you were good with, I'm just going to take these books and just start reading and cramming for it. No, no course. Same with CFA. I was all self-study and then you get, you know, whatever question bank you can get access to, to to take practice test to make sure that I was on course, but yeah, all self-study. Interesting. And I don't even know, like, what were the, do you remember, like, what were the practice, like the practice, practice tests, the question banks back then? So, you know, like CFP board provides some materials for that now, but I don't think they had those 10 years ago. Yeah. So I actually used the books from a company called Kier. I don't know what happened to okay. them. Uh, I think Kier, I think Kier got merged into Dalton at some point. Okay. And they, I guess I, I also bought some questions for them. I must have, I mean, <laughs> somehow I was taking questions. So I know it was from one of the providers of content and, um, because I know every time I got a question wrong, I made a note card and at the very last morning before the exam, before I went in, I'm flipping through my note cards and I finally get the concept of if your employer pays your disability insurance, your disability income is taxable. And if you pay, it's not taxable. And that came up three times on the exam. And I literally got it the moment before I walked in. So that's my most most vivid CFP exam memory, really. A lot of it might also be a little a little hazy in hindsight. It has been a decade. So so then talk just a little bit more about, I guess, the work and the role at Wealthstream and how it evolved. So you said you started out, like you'd be doing the trades, preparing quarterly reports, starting to sit in on on client meetings. So, so I guess the first thing I'm wondering is how much time had you gotten in actually being able to sit in in front of client meetings in the past? Like were the prior roles still letting you do that or was branch analyst and sales assistant pushing you mostly to to the background work and not necessarily the client facing meetings. So as a branch analyst I would sometimes present the investment presentations to clients and as a sales assistant I had the client relationships because I was on the phone with them and so I did sometimes sit in on the physical meetings as well but this was really the first time I was sitting in a meeting for the purpose of being the second advisor taking the notes making sure, you know, that all the prep work was done prior to the meeting. So yeah, this is where I really learned to become an advisor as well, was sitting in on those meetings and becoming the second eyes and ears on that client relationship. And so just what was that, like, what was that like for you seeing this, 
different kind of of financial planning, financial advice relationships? Like, how did you view it, or what, what did you feel like you were learning or taking away from it? Yeah, I mean, this is where you get your reps. I, you know, becoming an advisor, it, it's not something they teach in business school, right? The skill set of listening and reading the client's emotions and helping drive them towards, you know, making the right decisions with their investments and their financial plan. I mean, you can do financial plans for people all day long, but they may not actually implement them, right? So if they're going to hire you to be your real advisor, a fiduciary advisor, that's a skill set that. I only learned through doing. And so this is where, like I said, this was a very formative part of my career. It really set me up to do what I was going to do in all the years following it. And I loved it. But I mean, I was so green. I just sat there and took notes, you know, most of the time until maybe the second or third meeting with the same client where, you know, they started to build a rapport and feel more comfortable. But yeah, they they taught me how to be an advisor. I give them full credit for that. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how do you how do you distinguish what you were learning to be an advisor there versus what you were learning about being an advisor where you'd been previously? I mean, I'm sure the the firm you were at at UBS they put you know, financial advisor or consultant or something similar on their business cards as well. Like, what was the what was the difference? Yeah, I think at UBS it was more about you know. They're producers, right? What was our production last year? What's it going to be this year? You know, I had a branch manager who would literally rearrange the offices that the brokers sat in based on the production. So if your production fell, you'd get moved. In fact, I had a a problem one a scheduling problem one time. I was going to fly home to Alabama for Christmas and it didn't get on the calendar correctly. And so my punishment when I came back was that my office had been moved to a lesser desirable place in the office. What I saw was, at the brokerage firm, you know, clients were revenue sources of revenue. The way you maximize that revenue was to sell them more products and services, right? Do the lending, you know, do different types of business lines. You know, I didn't see a whole lot of the financial planning relationship, the sitting on the same side of the table. It was always just explaining why performance was what it was for the last quarter, dealing with the the requests that come in because most advisors probably have way too many clients that they could possibly even service. So it's a very reactionary service model. And I didn't, I couldn't really put my finger on why I didn't like any of that until I got to the other side of the business. And I was like, wait a minute, this is so much better. This is what I've been looking for. I, how did I not know that this existed all along? Like, what do you attribute that made it so different at Wealthstream than UBS? Just that there were no outside influences trying to tell you what you should recommend to a client, even if it's not explicit, right? The compensation grid drives everything at the brokerage firm. That, you know, that there were mutual fund share classes that didn't even have any extra fees in them and that you could offer them to your clients, that you could offer Vanguard funds to your clients. And it didn't matter because, you know, there was just no overlord telling you, you know, what's approved on the system. And I didn't really understand the mechanism for what was going on in the broker dealer that, and I know things have changed a lot, right? I've been gone since 2009, but everything was driven by how's the firm going to make money off of this, right? Versus a wealth stream, which is, yes, we need to get more clients and become a larger firm, but we do that by 
helping our clients come to the right decisions, giving them the advice so that they will then refer us to other potential clients, right? And then just the collaboration, right? Working with the client's CPA or estate planning attorney, actually going and sitting in those meetings and getting really deep into the details of their financial plan, right? The things that matter. We can't control what happens in the market this year, um, but we do know what the tax laws are and how you should probably, you know, strategize around, you know, accelerating expenses in certain years and, and you know, deferring them in others or um, thinking about your charitable gifts. I mean, these are things that you didn't even talk about at the brokerage firm, right? So, so yeah, it's just, it's totally different. It's seeing, it's, it's being in a factory that's supposed to produce revenue from your clients versus being, giving your clients advice. And I know that it feels like that to a lot of people in the brokerage firm. It didn't ever feel like that to me. So then what came next? You're obviously not, not still at Wealthstream. <laughs> Yeah. So I met my husband. He's from New Orleans. I decided to move down here and I looked for jobs. And essentially the the job market in finance in New Orleans is very small and very difficult to break into. And there were not many RIA firms to begin with. And at most of them, everybody had the same last name because it was a family business. And so there were really no jobs for me. So I decided to paying my own shingle. I said, you know what? I've got my CFP. I've got my CFA. I know how to be an advisor. I'm going to do financial planning and investments for people and I'm going to build it from scratch. So in 2011, I moved down and I started trying to do financial planning by the hour and investments on my own. And that was a really, really hard stretch. I mean, the first year, I can see it on my social security statement. It's a big fat zero. Every every dollar that came from any client went right back into trying to build a firm from scratch. So I was a reluctant entrepreneur. It really was, you know, this was my only option if I didn't want to go back and work for a bank or a brokerage firm and be in New Orleans. I mean, there wasn't remote working back then. So, so yeah, I ended up inadvertently hanging my own shingle and trying to figure out how I was going to build essentially a wealth stream, which is hilarious that I thought I was going to do that from scratch. So like, tell us more of just what, like, what was the vision of the firm as you were getting launched? Like, what were you, what were you aiming or envisioning to do? Like, what, what was the original model of what were you going to do and who are you going to go after and what were you going to charge? Yeah. Well, originally I was going to work with, you know, high net worth clients. And I started by calling all of the estate attorneys in town and I went into their offices and met with them and told them, you know, I'm going to do comprehensive financial planning and investment management for high net worth individuals. And, you know, in the South, everybody's polite. Everyone will talk to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start referring you business just because your 29 year old self walked yourself up into their their office and told them how amazing you were at, at financial planning. So I started to realize, you know what? Older people still see me. I still would get asked what college I was, where I was in school. You know, older people saw me as their child, right? And so I decided that, you know what? Maybe I should start marketing to people my age, Gen X and Gen Y. You know, they don't have a lot of AUM, but maybe I can do financial planning by the hour, lower my minimum, still charge, you know, an AUM fee on anything I'm managing, but also do financial planning on an hourly basis. And so I ended up calling my firm Ignite Investments and Planning. And the focus was on younger clients, Gen X and Gen Y, 
And so, and that's where, you know, I had a website and I was blogging and trying to, you know, promote myself. And I started my Twitter account and basically was just throwing as much stuff up against the wall as I could. But I did realize that, you know, I needed to work with younger clients because those were the people that were most likely to actually give me some business. And so that's what I was doing for a couple of years, making very little money, working side jobs to pay the bills. I was a waitress. (laughs) at like a restaurant bar down the street from me where Tulane kids hang out late into the night. And then I ended up through Craigslist meeting um, a guy who was looking for kind of like an assistant type role. Coincidentally, he ended up investing in in Ignite Investments and Planning to try to get me off the ground. We're still friends to this day. We're like little business, you know, I bounce ideas off of each other. But yeah, I was working multiple jobs trying to do financial planning by the hour with an AUM investment management business on the side. The only custodian that would take me at the time was Scott Trade. No. Yeah. E-Trade? Scott Trade? I can't even remember. Yeah, but. Scott, Scott, Trade. <laughs> yeah, Scott. Scott Trade. Scott Trade was uh, it, at the time had a small advisor services division. Yep. Yeah. So I was with Scott Trade, renting space in like one of these entrepreneurial incubator startup places, you know, $450 a month for a desk. And basically being a starving entrepreneur for a couple of years. And so like, like how did it go? Uh, obviously, the first year was not pretty. It's, it's pretty much sucky for everyone in the first year. Like, were you finding any momentum as a, as a year or two went by? Like, how did, it, how did it evolve and play out? Yeah, so I don't know if I would have made it or not. It wasn't going well. I was having success doing hourly financial planning. I think my blogging generated some some success and I worked with profession young professionals that weren't even in New Orleans, which was great. That that's that business model was working. But the AUM model was very slow and that you know I just wasn't getting a lot of traction there. I am not a great prospector. I am really great at talking to somebody who already wants financial planning and is interested in it. But what I found is, you know, prospecting is, you know, going through the however many people you need to find the person who actually wants financial planning at that moment that you happen to meet them, right? So I did everything. I went to like chamber after dark events, all the networking events, joined every organization I could think of from the University of Georgia alumni group in New Orleans to the Junior League, which is a women's volunteer organization even drove up like to suburbs to go to professional women's groups in other towns near New Orleans to try to drum up business. And so it really wasn't going very well. I mean, every extra dollar I made had to go back into some piece of technology or some investment to, to try to keep, you know, up the services I was providing. And coincidentally, I applied for a scholarship to attend a NAPFA conference because I just couldn't justify the business expense of going to a conference and won and was out in Las Vegas at a NAPFA conference when a local RIA, 30 North Investments, called me and said that their CIO, one of the founders of the firm, was leaving and they needed a replacement. And they basically, you know, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. So wait, did you meet them, like you met them through NAPFA going to this conference or just coincidentally while you were out at the NAPFA conference, they called you back at the at locally? Yeah, I had met them probably right when I moved to town and I was trying to find, you know, a, a job. 
and they were hiring for, you know, a position that just wasn't an advisor, right? It didn't make sense for me to take that job. And we kind of agreed, you know, this is not a good fit for either of us. So they knew who I was. And when they needed a new chief investment officer, they called me. And so I ended up joining them. So I probably would have failed, to be honest, if, I, if I'm being honest with myself. I don't think I was going to do that that well, but I didn't give myself enough runway um, because an opportunity came along that I couldn't turn down. So so then what what was that role? I guess like what happened to Ignite and then what was the role and what did you go into at 30 North? So Ignite pretty much dissolved. I gave my investor back his investment. We kind of hashed that out. I brought a few clients with me to 30 North and I started out basically doing triage on their portfolios. The prior chief investment officer had some pretty far out there views and was really overweight, significantly overweight in emerging markets, was very pessimistic on the US dollar. If you remember, this was kind of around the time that you had the the debt ceiling debate and the downgrade. And so I actually went to work immediately on the asset allocation and the portfolios and shifting them and immediately meeting with their clients to try to save some clients who were thinking about leaving because the CIO and founder was exiting the business. So it was an emergency situation. You know, I jumped in feet first and went to work, you know, rolled up my sleeves and was willing to do everything I could to help them. Ironically, the woman who was doing their trading also left the firm at the same time. So immediately after I get there, I have to also do the trades. Um, so, so determine the allocation and implement it. Yeah. Go. So that was a bummer because I thought for the first time in my life, I won't actually have to enter the trades. But it turned out that I never actually, we never actually got to the point of hiring back a person at, at that firm that would do the trading. It was always me. So, you know, I was helping with the portfolios, running the investment committee, meeting with clients. I recommended that we start doing financial planning. So I was doing the financial plans as well. Because they they had they had been sort of pure investment only up until that point, just were focused on managing portfolios. Exactly. Yeah. So we were doing that. And then I was also the chief compliance officer. And the SEC did come in and I was able to give them everything they asked for. I think it was a summary audit, so it wasn't that long. But it's hilarious because they told us that, you know, we want to talk to multiple people in the firm. And they came in and interviewed me for a morning and they never talked to anybody else at the firm. So we passed. But yeah, I did. I did. Everybody there was doing a lot of stuff. This is a small firm. Everybody was doing whatever we could to try to grow that business. And if you've ever been at an RIA that's trying to make it from 100 million in assets under management to 200, I think that's probably the hardest part of growing an RIA. It is a slog. So we were working very hard for the five years that I was at 30 North to build that practice. They had a focus on 401k consulting as well. And we're doing a great job being you know, fiduciary advisors on the 401k side. And that's a long lead time. So I was kind of holding the fort down on the individual side and wearing a lot of hats there. And so that was that the size of the firm, I guess, like, over a hundred million trying to get to two hundred million. Yeah. And how many people were there? Like just how many others were there as as you're wearing so many different hats yourself as well? Yeah. So there were three professionals and one support staff. And I ended up becoming, you know, minority partner. So you could say there was, you know, a major major owner and then two of us had minority interest in the business. 
And so that's a lot of professionals trying to live in a business that's not generating the revenue for three professionals. And you know, every extra dollar we made really needed to go back into the business, right? We needed to hire somebody to do the trades that wasn't me. So, you know, while I was really happy with the quality of the work that I was doing there, I love the team. Uh, I thought it was my forever job, but it turns out that my son was born and I looked up and said, this is not going to grow fast enough to allow me to achieve my own financial goals. And actually, on a drive up to visit my parents in Alabama, I listened to your podcast the first time that you were a guest, and I listened to your story, and something clicked because I realized that when you joined an RA firm, you joined one that you know grew to over a billion, right? And I was like, I probably need to do something like that. So that's when I started considering leaving what I really thought was my last job, that I was going to stay at 30 North. I was the youngest partner there. Maybe one day I would you know, become a larger owner of that firm and I would grow it over time. And, you know, I'd be working in one of the premier advisory firms in the city that I live in and that was going to be my job. But I kind of realized that I wasn't going to get to where I needed to go with that kind of trajectory of growth. And so actually that year, right before I decided to make the change, I moderated the wealth management conference. That's a funny story. Whoever was moderating it at the last minute was unable to go. And they called me up and asked me to do it two weeks before. And I had no idea what I was getting into. It turns out the moderator of that conference introduces every single speaker for one and a half days. So I jump into that role and I end up moderating a panel towards the end of the conference where a woman reminds me of George Kender's three questions. And, you know, just to review what those are, it's a financial planning technique to try to help clients figure out what's really important in their life. You know, it's, you know, if you had all the money in the world, how would you spend your time? How would you spend it differently? And then if you found out from your doctor that you've got a medical issue and your lifespan is limited to maybe the next five years or so, how would you spend your time if that happened to you? And then lastly, you you find out from your doctor that, you know, this is your last day. What did you miss? And so it's a really deep, you know, introspective practice of what matters to you. And I revisited those questions again and um, found that the the answer was I needed to make a job change to accomplish the things that I wanted in life. And and that's why I left that that really wonderful job and joined Red Holtz in June of 2018. And so the the constraint for you for where you were was was the growth it sounds like that like you were happy with the work you were doing and the and the and the people and the the what was being delivered to clients like the growth was the was the limiting factor here yeah and you know i wasn't able to focus any of my time on business development because i was the chief investment officer the chief compliance officer the financial person doing the financial plans, right? The person placing all of the trades. So I wasn't even able to move the needle. And so the business was just, it was coming in, but it, it's just really, really hard to get from 100 to 200. And that's not a place really where a firm should have three full-time advisors. That just that business, that amount of revenue doesn't support, you know, the lives of three professionals. So I just, you know, decided that 
I should just go somewhere where I can be more effective and somewhere that's growing faster. And around the time I was, it was really a a tough spring for me because I I did want to give up on something that I'd worked so hard in for five years. But around that time, Josh Brown, who I had known because we were on the same 40 under 40 list for investment news. We would speak at the same conferences. So we knew each other. He wrote, he wrote his blog that he had failed to hire women advisors at Reynolds Wealth Management. And we started talking that day and I moved a a couple of months later over there, over here where I am today. And, and so how how do you get comfortable with, as you'd said, like me, making a transition for something that you'd worked so hard on for five years trying to trying to build the firm where you were? It wasn't easy, but it's kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid, right? Like once I had made the decision, it was okay. But getting to the thought, allowing myself to think that I was going to leave, just you know, getting myself to a point mentally where, okay, I'm going to make this change was really tough. You know, I had built relationships with those clients, but you know, they're fine. They're being handled by some great advisors and they're going to be okay, you know? So yeah, it was tough. There was also a little bit of crying <laughs> when I left uh, on the last day and, you know, we're, we're still friends and, you know, I miss working with them on a daily basis, but I needed to do something else. And once I got that, once I had mentally made that decision in my head, it became very easy. And it turns out that I finally found my home, right? I, one of my blog posts early on was, you know, that I'm one of the misfits, you know, this is where I really belong, right? I already had a social, social media presence. I was already kind of like pushing the envelope on what I would say on social media, I had been doing media appearances, speaking, blogging, writing. Oh, and by the way, being a financial planner and advisor, they're really, I mean, it's its kind of funny. On my last day at 30 North, I picked, I've, I shot a photograph of my office and said, it's bittersweet leaving. I'll let you guys know what I'm doing on Monday. And like the immediate replies were, she's going to Red Holtz Wealth Management. So, you know, it was kind of like everybody else in the industry even saw that it was the perfect fit for me. And so... So what did that transition, like, how does that transition work exactly? I mean, were you, like, did you have your own client base where the idea was you were being recruited for your clients? Was the idea just, Ritholtz just wanted to hire you to be an advisor with the firm because they've got their own growth engine with all the the blogging, the social media and the rest that they do and and any clients you happen to to have or get or just a, a, a bonus at that point? like. What was, what was the idea of it? Because you know, I think for a lot of advisors, you know, changing firms is sort of contingent on bringing all your own clients, but that's kind of awkward when you were at a firm where these were shared clients and not necessarily easily separable in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think they a little bit took a chance on me, but you know, I had some clients from my original, you know, Ignite Investments and Planning, right? So there was something there because Reynolds was really hiring at the time advisors who could bring clients. But when Josh said to me, look, we have people going onto our websites who know that our minimum is 1 million. They know we do financial planning. They just want to talk to a good advisor. And all you have to do is call them up. I said, I I know I can do that, 
right? And then when they walked me through how an advisor is compensated for doing that, I said, I can, I can, for the first time in my career, I can see how I'm going to make it, right? Because I knew I, I can do that. And so while, you know, I wasn't bringing a huge client base, it was so obvious to me that as soon as I was over there and settled and able to, you know, get on the phone and call these people and do financial plans for them and show them what we could do, that it was going to work out. And, you know, fast forward a year later, when it came time to review the work that I had done, I had justified everything, you know, I had basically justified coming over and and the compensation structure and everything. So I just had confidence. It total confidence because I knew this is the missing piece for me. It's the prospect. Getting the, the, the qualified prospects in front of me, that was the missing piece. I can do the rest. And that's basically been my experience from day one. You know, Probably about one out of 10 people I talk to who are interested in learning more about our firm become a client. So it's been a phenomenal two and a half years of doing that. Because I've always been, you know, on a team or the support person. And now, you know, or on my own, all by myself, literally. And now, you know, I'm, you know, an advisor to so many clients knocking on the door of 90 million in assets under management, almost from scratch in two and a half years. And so I am curious, like you, you sort of alluded to a difference in the compensation, I guess, structure of how it works there. Like, can you share it all? Just what, how does it work? Or what's, what was unique about the arrangement at, at Ritholtz as an advisor versus where you'd been previously? Yeah, I, the difference is the ability to grow, right? But, you know, what I love about at Ritholtz is, you know, it's very clear. It's a, it's a salary. It's not like, you know, being at a, a brokerage firm or a warehouse where everything you bring in, you get a percentage of it and it's yours to keep and you're you're in control of your destiny, right? We're a team, right? So we're we're salary with with bonus and the bonus is actually more frequent. It's like every quarter, but it's just a very clear, you know, calculation of, you know, if this much in revenue comes in from what you bring in from the people you talk to, you're going to get this much of it in your raise. And then every quarter, if the revenue of the firm goes up, you're going to get you know more bonus from that. And I said, well, I know I can bring in this many clients and, and it's worked out exactly how I expected. And rather being at a slow growing business where at the end of the year, if there were any profits left over, you know, we had to reinvest them in the business. And there was no, there was, you know, there was no more blood to squeeze from that stone, right? We were paying ourselves as much salary as we could. So that was the difference is the growth. So compensation is is salary based, but salary still at least partially ties to the I guess, uh, amount of clients or assets or revenue that you're responsible for. So it does still it does still grow as your client base grows, but it's not a you know here's your here's your percentage off the grid. Yeah, it's like here's how much the revenue that the clients that you service per, you know was last year, right? Versus this year. And you get a very clear amount of that as a as a bonus as not as a raise, right? So there's a very, you know, there's a certain amount that will be your raise this year. And then you will get a quarterly bonus and you can participate in the fact that if a firm has a great quarter, which most of our quarters are up, it's like being on a rocket ship. We're just going straight up, you know, except for having, you know, a 35% market correction in March. You know, that's Minor pretty details. much what what we're looking at so minor minor details at least, yeah at least at least we built on march 31st and not march 21st because that that would have been a lot worse for most of us so like how does i guess how does the role work 
overall? Because I know, it, as you said, at 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 Thirty North, you wore a lot of different hats in a in a small firm environment. Ritholtz, I guess, well, is still a a very small firm compared to like a UBS, and anybody in the RIA space is kind of minuscule compared to Wall Street wirehouse firms. But but I know Ritholtz is significantly larger than than most RIAs, and so. I guess can you say over like what what's the size of the firm and and what is your role within the firm now compared to what you were doing previously? Yeah, so this is the best part really of of the switch that I made, which is that I now only spend my time on the things that I am most productive doing, right? I'm no longer the chief compliance officer. I'm no longer entering trades. I am a client-facing advisor, so I do financial plans. I call my clients, I review their financial plans, I manage that entire relationship, I recommend which strategy they should be in and you know, manage all the things that happen throughout the year and the changes that happen in their lives and just the whole owning that relationship, right? And I write my blog and I'm on the investment committee and I do some media relations. So I'm actually a little bit less singularly focused than most people are at my firm. I have my hands probably in too many pots, but I like them. But I don't have to spend any time doing the things that were holding me back, right? From being the most productive person, professional that I could be. That's very freeing, right? To not have all that. Basically, I was getting, you've you've given the analogy of the big rocks and the pebbles in the sand. I felt like every day prior, I was just in the sand, right? And never really getting to the pebbles or much less the big rocks. And now I'm just doing the big stuff. And that's amazing. And and I just, I enjoy it so much because I'm talking to really cool people all over the country who need help with their financial plans and their, and, and figuring out, you know, what they should do with this mass of money that they've accumulated. I mean, it's a little bit of a ivory tower to be sitting in, right? It's, I'm not, you know, helping people that are having trouble paying their bills, but you know, these are real problems. And I'm helping people solve. So I, I love that. And I love that for the first time in my career, I don't have to enter the trades. Thank you, Patrick Haley, who is our <laughs> the head of our trading department. You know, there are people that are just focused on doing that. So yeah, we've got just over 30 employees at the firm. I'm the only one in New Orleans, but that's not uncommon. That that's not something that we did, you know, at, it, we were remote already before the pandemic happened. So People would say, well, why did they want to open an office in New Orleans? And I say, no, 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 that's not how it works. It's not that Ritholtz says we want to open an office in a city and then they go find the advisor. They find the advisor and then they have a presence in that city because the advisor is a good fit. So I've been working remotely, but prior to the pandemic, you know, it's really easy to just fly up to New York or, you know, see each other at conferences. So I feel very connected to the team. Um, I think the firm has doubled in AUM since I've been here in two and a half years. That's pretty, pretty crazy. So what's, what's the size of the firm now? Yeah. Our last ADV was about 1.3 billion and that was in May. I think it was like around 800 million is, is what I read recently on RIA biz when I joined the article about me joining the firm. So, you know, that's pretty cool. I think there's been 10 employees behind joining behind me. So we've, you know, we were around 20 employees when I jo- joined. Now we're over 30. So that's been cool to see. Basically, everybody that works at Ritholtz Wealth Management is a rock star at what they do. It's it's like it's unlike anything 
that I think exists hardly anywhere. And I feel really just lucky to be a part of it where, you know, I know that if I have a question about a specific topic, there's somebody at my firm who's an expert in that or has really done a deep dive into it. That's the other thing is, you know, going from being the only person doing the financial plans at a firm to being amongst a huge team of financial planners, right? And we've we're the volume that we're doing, we're we're seeing so such a wider swath of financial planning issues that, you know, if you throw up a question on our advisor channel on Slack, there's somebody who's already encountered that at the firm and can help you out, you know. That's really fun too, being a part of a team of financial planners who are really operating, I think, at the top of our games. Yeah, yeah. And and so I think you said as well, like you just your client base has gone from basically zero when you got started or a, a little bit from former Ignite's clients that that may have followed up to up to 90 million in two and a half years. So just where are all these clients coming from for Blair, the one who said she doesn't like prospecting? <laughs> well, I don't have to do the prospecting because they're reading our blogs, right? We have seven blogs, you know? The bigger ones are obviously Barry Ritholtz at The Big Picture and Josh Brown at The Reform Broker, but so many people read Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick and I even blog, right? So they're reading our blogs. They're seeing Josh on CNBC and Googling us and going to our website. They're hearing Barry on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio and Googling him. Now we have a YouTube channel the compound that just crossed 50,000 subscribers. So they go onto one of these sites and they say, I want to talk to an advisor. And they fill out a little form with their name and a little bit about themselves and how they heard about us. And we get, I think it's over 200 of those a month now. And there are nine or 10 of us who those names are divvied up amongst. And we reach out to these people. And many of them become clients. And that's how it's happened. Just it's pretty, it's like, it's like an advisor's dream, right? <laughs> you don't have to get the client. That whole, that whole kind of blogging, CNBC, television, podcasting, YouTube, media machine is driving a regular lead flow that, that just gives opportunities for all the advisors of the firm in essence. Yes. And that's the genesis of the firm. I mean, the, the story is that, you know, Barry met Josh at a bloggers conference Barry knew people were already asking him, what should I do with my money? But he wasn't an advisor. Josh was an advisor. And they started working together. And their two audiences drove you know, the growth of the firm since day one. Um, and now that there's more and more of us doing more and more content, it's almost like it's just gaining momentum. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's funny just even as you're talking about numbers for, you know, for folks who want to go back and listen, like we had Josh Brown on, on the podcast back in the early days of the podcast in early 2017. So actually, ironically, episode 17. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 17, you can hear Josh talk about the story of the firm. But I think back then when when they had come on, it was 13 people at the firm and 500 million under management. And that's where they were in early 2017. So just sort of reflecting on that overall, like from that's now almost four full years of from 500 million to 1.3 billion. And from, I think they were 12 or 13 people on the team then to 30 today, as you had said earlier, like just the, the power and opportunities that come when you're at a firm that's growing, right. 
all the dynamics are different when you're at a firm that's growing than one where it's not growing much and everybody is struggling to divvy up a very limited pie trying to figure out how to get the growth machine going. That is really difficult to get going because there's not enough time and dollars to reinvest to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty crazy to hear those numbers in hindsight because I remember listening to your interview with Josh probably around the same time I listened to the interview of yourself uh, when, when Alan interviewed uh, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right around the same time. Uh, Josh was episode 17 and mine was episode 20. So ju- just literally less than a month apart. Yeah. I listened to both of those around the same time that I was contemplating, what am I going to do with my career? So, you know, I guess things just have a way of working out <laughs> if you just keep trying at the same career path for long enough. It's kind of crazy, like it, 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 always knowing that I had the talent, but never quite getting there was frustrating. But if I hadn't have made all the strange moves that I had made, I probably wouldn't have ended up where I ended up, which is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So I guess it's serendipitous in a way that I finally came home to the band of misfits um, where I am today. So then, so what, like, what surprised you the most about just this? journey of trying to find your own career path and and the the right place to be and build. Yeah, I a couple of things. I mean, being a top student in school always the biggest shocker to me coming out of school was that your straight A's don't mean you're going to be successful. <laughs> that was like a real reality moment for me, you know. It like getting, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a successful career if you're a good student, right? It's going to take a lot of other skills and grit. And I always kind of think about my career as I always say, I'm like, I was clawing my way out of a hole, essentially. However, the process of doing that made me into the person I was supposed to become. I actually was attending a virtual women's summit earlier this month or maybe last month. And Oprah was one of the speakers and she spoke about Eckhart Tolle, his philosophy that the experience you receive is the experience that you need to become who you're supposed to become, right? So like whatever I obviously needed to run the gauntlet (laughs) or get a few bumps and bruises along the way to make me into the advisor and the professional that I needed to be. I guess I was a pretty rough diamond in the beginning and I needed some polishing. The other thing that's really kind of been a a shift was a major shifting point in my career is not only that, that layoff to getting picked up by the RIA position, but that is the time in my life that I shifted from pessimism to optimism. And it was really, I, I, I credit Michael Goodman with this, with teaching me the power of optimism having that mindset, the moment in my life where I decided to stop being a pessimist about things is really where my career, it did start to to take off, even though there was some little bumps along the road from there, just because on a personal level, I made a city, I, I moved cities and I had to reestablish myself in a new town. You know, that moment that I became an optimist is really where everything started, started turning around for me. So what, I mean, just what, what changed? Like you just woke up one morning and said, I- I'm just going to be more optimistic now. Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's really hard to describe. I let go of all of the 
I've said it a couple of times, the chips on my shoulder, the the attitude I had about my career not getting off to the start that I wanted it to be and settling down and realizing that, you know, yes, I'm in a hurry to get somewhere, but there's learning to be done along the way and that this is beneficial. And I just became at peace with that, right? For the first time, instead of saying, you know, why am I not already the CEO, you know, of a Fortune 500 company settling down and saying, wait a minute, it's a journey. Don't and they I'm, know my grades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't understand why I'm not, you know, going straight to the top here. And I, I just, and I stopped comparing myself to others, right? Like I, I mentioned the, the Goldman Sachs boyfriend who was making double the me and, you know, that bothered me. And I finally just let go of all that and said, no, this is, this is me. This is who I am. This is, this is where I'm supposed to be. And somehow this is all going to work out. And my, my shift in, in attitude and mindset changed from that moment. And I still had lots of adversity to go through from there, but I did it with the optimistic mindset. It's not an easy shift. I can't really tell you how I did it, but I guess maybe just having the knowledge that optimism was the better path helped me kind of click over to the other side of my brain. And do you still find you, do you relapse occasionally or was it just like once, once the mindset changed, that was that, and, and now you're on a different path? I have not had a relapse in that. That was just a, I started going the other direction in life and I haven't stopped. So what was the, what was the low point for you on the journey? You know, you would think it would be starting my own RIA from scratch and working at a restaurant as a cocktail waitress until midnight. And the other part of that story, by the way, is that there was a group of us and Alan Moore was part of it. And he was kind of the ringleader where we were paid to sit and be experts for the website ehow.com. Yes, I and remember that. We would yes. sit at our computers and wait for the ding and answer a question that somebody paid to ask an expert. And so I would go on these like three-hour shifts where I literally could not leave my computer. But nothing might happen. That in- And that's when I blogged a lot. Like, But nothing yeah, could happen for like three hours. But if it did- On-demand financial advice. Like just if, if a consumer went to eHow and said, I have a question, I want to talk to an advisor right now, you got paid. But as Murray serves like actually pretty decent money to just to answer their financial questions over the internet. Yeah, we did that for a little while. And then I, I left before it ended. I don't know how it ended. I don't think it was very successful for eHow. But you, know, you would think that that would- working multiple jobs, not having any AUM would be the low point. And I, and I would also like to say it was at the beginning starting out as a sales assistant or being that branch analyst where I thought I had finally moved up, but then the financial crisis hit and I didn't get more than a 10% of the bonus that my predecessor had gotten the year prior and all of those things. But now that I'm looking back on those times, you know, mid twenties, Manhattan, going out and having wholesalers buy me, you know, sushi at Nobu and steak at Del Frisco's. I mean, there was a time my friend always reminds me that I looked at her and I said with a kind of a pouty face, like Del Frisco's again, you know, like, (laughs) but those were some of the best times of my life, you know, and I'm so, I'm so happy I have them. So there were a lot of low points and there were times when I just would become despondent, like, you know, why am I 
you know, and it sounds so full of myself, but like, why am I so talented and I can't make it, right? Like, why am I not having the success that I should have when I know I should have it? But every time, every point that I would say was a low point, when I look back at it now, I can, I see the joy in all of those moments as well. So that's a non-answer for you, but that's really how I feel about it. And so I guess I'm sorry, like, as you look back and and sort of this question that you struggled with, like, I'm very smart, I'm very talented, I don't feel like I'm making it the way that I wanted to be or expected to be aren't having the success. Like, how, how do you answer that question now looking back? The question of like, why what, wasn't like, I having why, success? Yeah, or like, why wasn't it going as you wanted or expected or hoped? I think it's just a series of, of a cascade of luck. You know, it's kind of like the movie Sliding Doors, right? You know, I went one way or, or, you know, the books where you could choose one way and not the other, right? Yeah. Choose your, choose your own adventure books. Yeah. It's like, I, I had to go on this path to get where I am. Right. But somewhere along the way, like the decision to hurry up and graduate in December meant that I wasn't really at college in the prime recruiting phases, right? Majoring in finance at the University of Georgia, which is a fabulous Southern State University, but the really the strengths for getting a job were different majors, right? To, you know, wanting to be an investment banker, but, you know, probably the people interviewing me realized that I was not going to be a good person to sit in the office 100 hours a week and do spreadsheets, you know, and luckily they saw the wisdom in that, but I didn't. So I, it, you know, I didn't have a connection into the, to the business. I'm from the South. I'm not, you know, I'm not from the Wall Street area. It's just a whole conglomeration of all of those things. And I do come back to the bank, the president of the bank telling me to apply for a teller position. And I really do think that he wouldn't have told a young man that. I do think that gender played a role. You know, the world has changed a lot in 20 years. When I was starting my career, people who were nearing retirement are people that worked in a very different world, you know, before women really entered the workforce. So, you know, I think that I started three or four steps back from where I should have been for for all of those reasons combined. But there was sort of a, a higher purpose to all of it, because if I hadn't learned how to open you know, all the paperwork required to open a trust account. I could have never started my own business when I moved to New Orleans. I probably would have had to go back and work at a bank, right? So all everything that happened happened for a reason. It was just hard to see at the time. And I guess that's just what I had to do to get to get where I am. Yeah, I, I find I you said it well of like the 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 roles and the jobs we have that that turn out after the fact to have been really beneficial, even if we didn't necessarily appreciate them at the time. You know, I, you know, I spent a, a piece of my career in, I guess what I would probably in retrospect call like half paraplanner, half client service administrator, like doing all that same paperwork and insurance annuity applications and account opening forms and NACAT transfers, non-NACAT transfers and all the, you know, just living with all the guts of, of, what happens behind the scenes in advisory firms. And, you know, while that wasn't what I wanted to do for the long run, I'm very thankful I had that job and spent a period of time doing that because that, you know, that just anchored me in the reality of how all this stuff works behind the scenes and in how advisory firms get executed that I, I, I don't know if I could have otherwise done. Yeah. You know, I mentioned that my dad 
you know, works in a family business, ready mix concrete. And I, he told me one time when I was younger, I can't run this business unless I can actually do every job of every employee that I have. And, you know, that is true, you know, to a certain extent, if you really want to be influential in a business, you have to understand the role that everybody plays and, and the mechanics of what they do. And I think it's, it's hard to be successful if you don't know that at a certain level. So, so given all that and kind of this, you know, the, the journey we travel sometimes is the one that we needed to, even if we didn't, didn't realize at the time, uh, as you said, like the, the experience you receive is the experience you needed to become who you're supposed to become. So is there anything like if you could go back and whisper something in the, in the ear of, you know, you 15 plus years ago, just getting going at, at UBS, like, is there something you wish you could go back and tell yourself then that you know now? Yeah. And people told me in any way, and I didn't want to listen, which is be patient, right? I remember an advisor in the UBS office saying, what are you in such a hurry for? You are on track to have a CFA charter at 27 years old. You know, you are already well on your way. I didn't see it that way. I remember celebrating turning 30 because I finally wasn't a little kid anymore. You know, I've always been in a hurry. I used to get mad when I was a little kid and they would give me the children's menu at the restaurant. So I would say be patient because there was a lot of fun to be had. And I did have a lot of fun, but I could have savored it a little bit more, the experience that I was getting at the time, the things I was learning that I didn't realize were going to be beneficial later down the road. So just to settle back and be patient. So any other advice that you would give other young advisors just getting started and coming into the industry today and trying to figure out you know, th- their path and where they should go, or at least where, where they should go start and what the first step is for, for all those December grads who might be listening to this shortly before they graduate in the next month. Yeah. Take some electives next semester. <laughs> and push, push your graduation to, uh, yeah. to the spring semester. All right. Yeah. Don't do that. And just understand that careers are long and look for a person that can hire you that you can learn from, right? And and soak it all in. You know, go with the firm or the people that you think can teach you the most. And just be willing to do whatever task or role is given to you with a smile on your face. <laughs> What you learn in school, I mean, now they have the financial planning degrees, which I think is amazing. I'm just so glad that that exists now. But, you know, the things you learn on the books are totally different than the application of becoming a professional. And that that's that's an experience that you learn physically by doing. And so just soak it all in. And if you're passionate about it, it should work out. So as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes always comes up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people. And so as, as you've noted, you said, like, I've, I feel like I finally found my, my home with the, with the band of misfits. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah. So I, it's so funny. I used to say, I've, I know I've made it if I can bring my dog to work. And now we all work at home with our dogs who Check. Not, 
Yeah, by the way, my dog is locked up in the room so that he won't bark if the mailman comes. But for me now, you know, the ability to practice basically my vocation, right? It's not just a job for me. There's no time where I am not Blair Duke and a financial advisor, right? Like even on the weekends, even in when I'm sleeping, like that is that can never be divorced from who I am, right? So my ability to live out my vocation every single day for as long as I want to keep doing it and then to provide, you know, I now have two kids, to provide them with the education and the experiences that I want them to have growing up. If I can do those two things, that's success for me. I love it. I love it. And and how fortunate the pandemic helped in making it easier to bring your dog to work. Right. I've made it. (laughs) Made it. Well, thank you so much, Blair, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.